1: Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
2: Has the war in Ukraine created a new global economic reality? I'm Zach Beecham, and I write for Vox about democracy and global politics. Today, I'm your host for a special series on Vox Conversations. The War in Ukraine Explained. In this four-part series, we're going to attempt to bring clarity to one of the biggest and most confusing political events of our lifetimes. This week, for part two, we're going to discuss sanctions, the truly extraordinary way that the US and its allies have wielded their financial clout as a weapon against Russia. Over the course of a few weeks, one of the world's largest economies has been cut off from key features of the global financial and economic system, leading not only to widespread pain in Russia but potentially a long-term transformation in the global economy. My guest to help us understand all this is Dan Dresner, professor of international relations at Tufts University's Fletcher School and an opinion writer at the Washington Post. Dan is one of the best popularizers of IR research. Check out his book, Theories of International Politics and Zombies, if you're interested in that kind of thing. But he's also a bona fide expert on sanctions, which is the focus of some of his academic research. He's a perfect person for this conversation. I'm really happy to have him with me today. Hey Dan, what's up? Hey Zach, uh, happy to be here. Well, one thing you see a lot in the media coverage of the sanction situation is a description of them as being unprecedented. You know, this unprecedented moniker, right, for the sanctions it might seem a little hard to believe given the number of countries that the US has sanctioned over the course of years and the volume mm-hmm. of sanctions that it's used, but it, it does seem to me to be at least somewhat accurate. So tell me what exactly distinguishes the current sanctions on Russia from previous kinds of sanctions that have been deployed to punish countries for, you know, insert bad thing here.
3: Actually, I would say there's two ways in which the Russia sanctions have been unprecedented. Although I want to stress that I actually don't think they're as unprecedented as the media has sort of been reporting. One being official and one being more the private sector reaction. So. The official way in which I think the sanctions have been unprecedented were the measures taken particularly against the Russian central bank in that their assets were frozen overseas. And I think this surprised legitimately everyone, particularly the Russians, because one of the narratives prior to Russia's invasion was the notion that. Vladimir Putin and Russia's central bank, which is extremely competently run, had amassed significant amounts of hard currency reserves, had diversified away from the dollar, held gold, and therefore would be able to resist the sanctions. Except what no one realized, except apparently U.S. and European financial intelligence officials, was that an awful lot of what Russia held in terms of foreign exchange reserves was actually held overseas. So by freezing those assets, Russia's ability to, in theory— defend the ruble and also supply hard currency to others was much more constrained than anyone realized. What's important to understand about those sanctions, by the way, is that that wasn't just the United States. That was also the European Union. If the Europeans, uh, including the Swiss, had not cooperated on this, those sanctions wouldn't have had quite the same effect. The second way in which the sanctions have been unprecedented actually is not due to anything that governments have done. We've seen The U.S. imposed financial sanctions on other countries. Iran is the most obvious and most recent example. We've seen them be imposed with significant amounts of multilateral cooperation. Uh, The U.S. imposed sanctions on Venezuela and Iran with significant multilateral support. What has been interesting about the Russia case has been what I would almost describe as the meme sanctions imposed by the private sector, because what is fascinating has been seeing the various corporations, more than 400 at this point, essentially go beyond what the sanctions actually required them to do. And so we've seen corporations pull out of investments with Russia that otherwise probably would have been legal, that probably would have stayed on the right side of the law. But what you're seeing is corporations engaging is what is called de-risking. And we've seen this before in some financial sanctions where banks will sometimes restrict what would otherwise be legal operations because they really don't want to run afoul of the U.S. Treasury or U.S. regulators. But in this case, you're seeing consumer brands doing the same thing. And it really seems like they're doing that in part to stay on the right side of the sanctions. But also they're doing it a lot, I think, because they want to stay on the right side of social media and they want to stay on the right side of the sort of global response to what Russia's done. So I
2: want to drill down on the first half of that, right? Because Mm -hmm. sanctions on a central bank, right? Central banking is is like a notoriously confusing concept. And I find myself often (laughs) thinking about the various different implications of this and what the U.S. has done for the stability of Russia's economy, not like fully grasping the different ways in which the central bank sanctions have really hampered Russia's ability to deal with the financial fallout of this. So can you sort of walk me through the situation there, like what how that matters in a sort of econ 101 course kind of way.
3: Sure. So let's assume for a second that you're imposing sanctions on a country and you're that country's central bank. So you have suddenly experienced a negative economic shock. There might be a run on your currency. There might be an economic contraction. I believe economists are estimating that Russia's economy will likely shrink by about 15 yep. percent in this quarter. That is not an insignificant shrinkage. You know, if you're the central bank, what can you do in these instances? Well, there's a couple of concerns you have. The first is the macroeconomic one. You want to make sure the economy recovers. You want to make sure your currency doesn't collapse. So you would ideally want to buy up your own currency and sell foreign currencies as a way of bolstering, in this case, the ruble. But to do that, you need to have access to the hard currency. You need to have access to the dollars, the euro, the yen, the Swiss franc, what have you. And this is where Russia's inability to tap those resources that it holds overseas compromises its ability to defend the ruble. So that's one thing that's going on. Another thing that's going on, ideally, is that there are multiple Russian banks that were also sanctioned. Most of the major ones have been sanctioned. You saw, particularly in the early days of the crisis... Russians lined up behind ATM machines to try to withdraw their funds. So this can lead to runs on banks. Um, And this is also something a central bank is going to be concerned with. And the way that the Russian central bank dealt with this was they acted in an unprecedented manner to essentially raise interest rates by 10 percent, which is a lot. They went, I think, from 9 percent to 20 percent. That was something they could do domestically without needing to engage internationally. But You know, one of the ways in which a financial sector will stay solvent and one of the ways in which a currency will stay uh, relatively stable is the belief that that financial sector will have access to global capital markets. It would be safe to say that Russia's central bank does not, and it would also be safe to say that almost all of the key Russian banks do not. And therefore, this can lead to runs on banks. It can lead to currency devaluation. The one thing it is absolutely leading to is inflation. Uh, within Russia. And these are all things that central banks try to fight against. But there's only so much that a central bank can do in this circumstance. You know, there's a lot of loose talk in the United States about potentially we might be facing stagflation, which is ludicrous because the U.S. economy is roaring along pretty nicely. Russia is actually going to face stagflation. It is facing a severe uh, economic crunch and prices are going up significantly. So, There's this distinction
2: in the way that we do sanctions, right, and the way we talk about them between broad-based and targeted sanctions. Broad-based are ones that affect, like, the entirety of the economy, and that's mostly what we've been talking about so far. But there have also been a series of targeted sanctions that focus on the Russian elite, Right. That's, that's why they're called targeted, right? Because they're designed to hit elements of the regime. So we're talking like Putin's key advisors, I believe Putin himself in certain cases, um, some oligarchs, right? You know, you see all these images of yachts being uh, <laughs> taken in different countries, which almost seems like a stereotype. Like, yeah. how do we think about the effectiveness of targeted sanctions versus broad-based sanctions? Because the effect of broad-based sanctions is pretty obvious, right? Russia's economy is in a tailspin right now in the ways you've just described.
3: Right. So policymakers, particularly in the West, like to talk about the distinction between sort of comprehensive embargoes versus targeted sanctions with the idea that targeted sanctions are like the precision guided munitions of economic statecraft. So as opposed to imposing a blanket trade embargo, like let's say you saw with Iraq in the 1990s, the problem with comprehensive sanctions is that it is very easy for a target's elite and for a target leader to shift the burden of sanctions from his supporters and his key advisors to the most powerless members of the country. We saw Iraq do that in the 1990s. So the theory is, well, if you use targeted sanctions, particularly if you use targeted financial sanctions, you can really hurt the target's elite. And if you hurt the target's elite, the theory is, is that, well, that elite might then place pressure on the foreign policy leader to change their mind, um, which would potentially lead to more concessions. And It makes sense that you would think that financial sanctions would work here because, to put it bluntly, when you're trying to freeze bank accounts, you're hitting elites because elites are the ones with the bank accounts. So in theory, that would actually have an effect. The problem is twofold. The first is is that for all the talk about a distinction between targeted sanctions and sort of more broad-based ones— There comes a point where if you apply more and more targeted sanctions, it ceases to really look like it's all that targeted and instead looks a little more comprehensive. So much like precision guided munitions, they're not necessarily as targeted as the sort of PR version of them makes them out to be. The second problem is with respect to Russia. So the theory of the case here is that if you put pressure on Putin's cronies, Putin's cronies will put pressure on Putin and he will change his mind. This misunderstands the relationship between Putin and the sort of oligarchs or Siloviki or however you want to put it. Plutocrats, I think, is the the best word. You could have talked about the oligarchs in the 1990s where Boris Yeltsin really was somewhat beholden to them. And even in Vladimir Putin's first few years, it seemed like the oligarchs held the sort of balance of power. But beginning in the mid 2000s and particularly accelerating after 2014, it is clear that the Siloviki rely much more on Putin than vice versa. And so it's entirely fair to target these sanctions on these people. But the theory that therefore that will cause Putin to to acquiesce is false. That's probably not going to happen. Instead, Really, there's a way in which you almost have to think of these kinds of targeted sanctions not so much as an instrument of economic pressure, but rather as sort of instrument of quasi-law enforcement, where you've decided that Russia's engaged in an illegal war. You can't actually arrest these people. There's been loose talk about, you know, trying Putin at the International Criminal Court. That's not going to happen. But you know what you can do? You can seize their assets. So this law enforcement frame for thinking about it is interesting, right, because
2: – that presumes like a kind of legitimacy to the US and its allies acting as like enforcers of a global order whereas from the russian point of view this might look like an act of war right these whole set of sanctions mm-hmm. how do we distinguish between like a blockade like if the us navy went and set up outside russian ports we would all understand that to be us entry into the war this is having arguably more significant impacts on the Russian economy, depending on like the nature of the blockade. And, and yet, it's not considered U.S. entry into the conflict,
4: mm-hmm.
2: at least not by most people, not under international law. Why is that? Why is this not war? Or is it? Or is it? Or are you saying that like maybe this distinction is just a made-up one? I mean,
3: it's not a made-up one in the sense that this is how international law works. It's what the precedent is. But, but you're correct to note that in some ways... What the U.S. is doing now is kind of akin to what the United States was doing in World War II prior to Pearl Harbor. The United States did not declare war on anyone, but was it aiding a belligerent? Yes, it absolutely was. Um, We saw this through lend-lease. We saw this through the sanctions, the oil embargo that was imposed on Japan, and the scrap metal embargo that was imposed as well. And in some ways, I think that's the way you have to think about what the United States has been doing. The United States has actually assisted Ukraine across a wide variety of dimensions. There's the sanctions— there's the intelligence sharing, which I think has been significant. And there's also the arms shipments, which have also been extremely significant. And I will say, as someone who has occasionally studied Vladimir Putin, I'll admit to a little bit of schadenfreude on this because in some ways what you're seeing is a reversal of what Putin has normally done, which is it's normally been Putin who has not necessarily declared war on someone, but has rather sort of tried to find you know ways in which he can assist another actor without actually declaring war. So whether this You're talking about the little green men in terms of Crimea or Russia's use of economic coercion and economic sanctions against the it's near abroad. Now, suddenly he's finding these things being used against him uh, and used against Russia. So in that sense, unsurprisingly, when Russia was doing these things, you know, for the last decade, that didn't lead to war either because it was seen as more sort of this gray zone between what we would consider standard diplomacy and outright war These were pressure instruments. These are intelligence operations. And so in that respect, that is what the United States is doing right now. The other thing I would say is that there are clear, bright red lines where this becomes not that but actual war. And this is why there's been such vigorous pushback against the idea of a no-fly zone. But there's no denying that that this area has gotten blurrier. And we haven't even talked about cyber, I would add, which is another arena where you could see something that happens in the virtual realm then translating into escalation on the battlefield. What is striking to me, though, and I know this is not necessarily something that anyone would ordinarily say, but it it seems quite clear that the United States has made very clear there are certain lines it's not going to cross. But also, as much as Russia has occasionally said that the sanctions are tantamount to war or that we might attack military convoys coming in from the West, it hasn't done either of those things either. And so it's also clear that Russia realizes it has to live with this current situation.
2: And not just the current situation as imposed by the West, right? The sort of governmental sanctions you you referred to, I think, meme sanctions was the term you used a little bit ago, <laughs> yeah, which I, I kind
3: of like, actually, to describe what private corporations are doing. Well, I mean, in some ways, those are actually the most damaging sanctions. I mean, there's no denying the financial sanctions have, have hurt Russia. But, you know, if Boeing and Airbus let you know that they're not going to service Russian planes... Well, Russian planes aren't going to be able to fly for that much longer because eventually they're going to need to be servicing. And I certainly wouldn't want to get on a Russian plane. You know, if shipping lines like Maersk and MSC make it clear they're not going to dock at Russian ports, that also greatly complicates Russia's ability to trade with the rest of the world. The fact that you've had, you know, longtime iconic brands like McDonald's saying that they're pulling out, that, you know, does have an effect on local Russians. So. It turns out that a lot of these corporate moves are not just going to uh, make it difficult for let's say Russian airlines to fly. It's also going to make it difficult for Russian factories to operate. Russia is just as imbricated in the global supply chain as any other country. And indeed, even the efforts ostensibly by Russia to be more autarkic turn out not to have amounted to much. So like Russia claimed that they had the ability to produce trucks locally, it turned out that what they were doing was simply importing check-made kits and then assembling them in a Russian factory. If The Czechs aren't going to send those kits anymore, then that obviously complicates Russians' ability to produce. And indeed, that extends even to the military realm. I was about to say, I saw this photo
2: that really captured my imagination of a Russian tank manufacturing plant that was allegedly, according to the person who produced the photo, suspended because Russia literally lacked the ability to continue manufacturing its tanks. Mm -hmm. To what extent can we see there being like a direct effect on Russia's ability to fight the war? from these sanctions, right? Like not just indirect pressure because its economy is in trouble, but like literally cannot manufacture the things that it needs to replace its losses.
3: Yeah. Over the long term, this is going to have an effect on Russia. And I think you can see that in the ways in which Russia had to request from China, I think within the first week of the war, additional economic aid, but also additional military equipment. There's been no indications that the Chinese have sent these things, but the fact that Russia made the request in the first place is kind of extraordinary. Normally, I mean, say what you will about, let's say, U.S. military operations in Iraq or Afghanistan. They didn't need, you know, equipment after, you know, seven days of the operation. The military part of those uh, operations went fine. It was the sort of long-term occupation that became difficult. So, I mean, in some ways, this is Russia being squeezed on both sides. The first is, is that they've had to deal with exceptional losses on the battlefield, and that's due to the Ukrainians. But they also have to deal with the fact that it is going to be harder to resupply, particularly on the tanks, because they're going to have difficulties producing them going forward.
2: We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, There's a major hole in the plan to block Russia's access to the resources it needs to wage war. So I'll ask Dan Dresner, just how big is this hole?
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before—
4: borough.com slash box.
2: Before the break, we were just talking about how the international sanctions were affecting Russia's ability to uh, literally maintain its war. But there's one area in which Russia has experienced less punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, in fact, is, is continuing to get resources that it can use to fight the war, which is its oil and gas sector. Mm-hmm. Now, the U.S. has banned imports of Russian oil, but that's not the really significant market here. Right? Europe is the key for Russia's exporting of these goods, particularly oil and gas. And yet Germany, which is the leader of Europe in certainly in economic terms, arguably in political terms as well, has ruled out a short term, at least temporarily. Right? They're, they're refusing is a better way to put it, mm-hmm. refusing to cut off Russian imports in these areas. How much of a hole does this blow in the, in the sanctions regime?
3: It blows a pretty big hole, to be honest. And indeed, this is why, for example, the Russian ruble in the immediacy after the attack and when the financial sanctions were announced took a serious nosedive. I think it fell something like almost 100 percent in value it, relative to the dollar. It has recovered significantly. It is now, I think, only about 20 percent lower lower than the pre-invasion exchange rate. And the reason for that is that actually Russia's made a significant windfall from its export of oil and natural gas because the prices of those commodities have gone up since the war started. It's still legal for Russia to ship oil and natural gas to Europe, and it's legal for Europeans to buy it. Um, So that's unsurprising. Interesting short-term question and interesting long-term question on this. The short-term question is As we exit March and go into April and as the weather starts to warm up in Europe, um, will they need as much oil and natural gas as they did before? You know, primarily, this has been about heating people's homes. At least in the short term, it might be the case that that demand gets reduced and that'll reduce the amount of Russian hard currency earned by their exports. The more interesting thing, and this is where Germany has started, you know, taking steps where you're beginning to see Europeans not just think about what we were doing right now, but also long-term weaning themselves away from dependence on Russian energy. And so you've seen a a panoply of announcements made by particular Germany saying we're hopefully going to not need, let's say, Russian coal by the end of this year, um, reduce needs for Russian natural gas as well as Russian oil, with the idea that no matter how the war in Ukraine ends, what is interesting is that the Germans clearly think this is going to be a long-term problem. And so you are going to see, I think, efforts to diversify in the long term uh, away from Russian energy. And that could have profound effects on both the Russian economy, but also the sort of geopolitical situation in in complicated ways, I guess would be the way I would put it. Um, Well, let's get into some of those complicated ways. One of the big
2: issues this raises, as always with energy, is like the long term future of the climate. Right. And I think that's one of those complications that you may have just been hinting at there. Yeah. Right. Because when I've looked at the German plans to wean themselves off of Russian oil and gas, some of it seems to be sticking with coal power for energy, which um, is not helpful for climate change. To put it mildly, so, I mean, the long-term implications of an attempt to move away from Russian oil and gas, which you'd think would be great, right? Like, maybe we'll use some renewable energy, some wind, some solar, maybe some nuclear, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which is not renewable, but still, you know what I mean, right? Cleaner energy. Yeah. Instead, it looks like some of the dirty energy
3: might, to a certain extent, make it come back. Yeah, you've seen some talk about LNG. I mean, that's in some ways the quicker and also more long-term way in which they can, you know, use hydrocarbons but not necessarily Russian hydrocarbons. And there's a way in which that serves U.S. interests because the U.S. can then export LNG. What is interesting to me, though, is that Germany has explicitly ruled out a return to nuclear, which I confess to being somewhat surprised by because that would be one way in which you could diversify your energy needs that would be considered environmentally clean. Nuclear energy is costly. It is actually not as efficient as, let's say, solar or wind beyond hydrocarbons. But I think this is just one of those political red lines that, that uh, the Germans won't go past at this point. So you're right that one of the things this is going to lead to is potentially, at least in the short term, dirtier consumption. The other problem with this is that essentially the more you sever Russia from the European economy— the less the Russians have to worry about disrupting that exchange. There has been a degree to which Russia recognizes that it does need to export to Europe, and that in some ways has acted as a constraint on Russian behavior. If Russia begins to see, you know, Europe as its Cold War II adversary, then suddenly that interdependence ceases to act as a break on Russian behavior.
2: And the implications of that are... Let's spell that out, because when you put it that way, it sounds like one of the major breaks on a broader war, economic interdependence and mutual interests,
3: is almost in decline. Yeah. And so then the question becomes, I mean, if you take Putin at his word, and I grant you that there's not always reasons you should do that, but it is clear that Putin wants to essentially, if not reconstitute the Soviet Union, reconstitute the Russian Empire. And there are an awful lot of independent sovereign states in places where it used to be the Russian Empire. We can think about the Baltic states. We can think about Poland. Beyond Ukraine, there's Moldova, there's Romania, there's uh, Slovakia. And so the question becomes, if Putin thinks he has nothing to lose and believes that stoking the fires of Russian nationalism will bolster him domestically, why not threaten the Baltics? Now, I want to stress here that one of the other effects, however, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is that I don't think that military threat has the same punch as it did even six weeks ago. Yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah. And and so I was at a conference where uh, this possibility was floated and someone uh, who was working in the U.S. government, who is not normally prone to these kinds of statements, respond, Putin's going to invade the Baltics with what army? The implication being that if, if he couldn't take action in Ukraine, there is no way he would defeat NATO in an invasion of the baltics and so interestingly enough there were a lot of debates about you know the extent to which the u.s was taking article 5 seriously within nato concerns that that russia's force looked formidable one of the ways in which this war has is going to have longer lasting effects is on public perceptions and other countries perceptions of russian military power and that has always been putin's biggest calling card the idea that his military was formidable it looks much less formidable now which when you put it that way It dampens the
2: concerns that I have about the West sort of decoupling Russia from the global economy and that giving Russia incentives for military adventurism. Right. So that's a plus, I guess, given how weak their military has looked. But on the other side of the ledger, there's a broader economic I don't I don't know if bifurcation is exactly right, though some analysts are saying this between a US-led economic system and a Chinese competitor that's emerging. Right. And one of the fears that people have about the sanctions, about cutting Russia off is that it'll basically force it to adopt China as its principal economic patron and start playing the the international economic game according to Chinese rules rather than American ones. I guess sort of my my questions for you are, one, to what extent do you think that dynamic is real? Because I I think in some ways it's exaggerated. And second, what does it look like if it does actually happen? Does it mean like moving away from the dollars, the global – currency of exchange, right? The global reserve currency. What what, what exactly are we talking about
3: here? So there is one way in which the dynamic is real, which is one of the effects of Russia's engagement with the West in particular was you had this plutocratic class in Russia um, that were cosmopolitan. They didn't just, you know, have their money in Moscow and St. Petersburg. They also bought flats in London. They bought various pricey Western assets. They also bought Western consultants, Western lawyers and Western lobbyists. That has clearly come to an end. You've seen the rentier sector, as it were, cut off their dealings with Russian plutocrats in part because of the sanctions, in part because of PR concerns. So you suddenly eliminated what would be interest groups that would potentially advocate in, let's say, the United Kingdom or the United States for better ties with Russia. So that's one way in which it has changed. Now, That said, the question is, is Russia now going to look to China as as its patron and try to create an alternative economic order? Yes, that is what it's going to try to do. That said, Russia can't do that. It doesn't matter what Russia wants. Um, What matters here is what China wants. And so this is the other way in which this war and the sanctions and all of this will truly matter in terms of how China interprets what has happened and what will happen going forward. And the problem here is that there are different ways China can go here. China could look at what has happened to Russia and decide, oh, wow, so we really need to get ready for if we're going to make a move on Taiwan for similar actions to take place. So we, in fact, need to start creating that alternative economic order now uh, so that we you know, reduce our interdependence on the West so that we can be prepared to launch a war to reunify China in their minds um, without facing the same costs. So that's one scenario, in which case you would see efforts to create an alternative economic order. But the other scenario is that China looks at what's happened to Russia, looks at Taiwan and realizes we thought this would be an easier thing to do. And what Ukraine is teaching us is that it is not an easy thing to do. And so, you know, the advantage that China has is that it might learn from Russia's lesson and decide there are benefits to being part of the global economic order. And China is still very much a part of the global economic order, you know, despite all the efforts in terms of trade wars, uh, in terms of COVID and so on and so forth. It's worth remembering that Sino-American trade uh, hit new record levels last year. And so it doesn't necessarily matter whether governments are trying to impose tariffs or anything like that. The fact is people still want to buy goods and services. And so there are reasons to think that China might choose not to try to create an alternative economic order because there are also aspects of that that it's not clear China would succeed in doing. So the idea that you asked me about replacing the dollar as the global currency, I don't think China could promote the renminbi in the same way. And I'm also not sure China wants to promote the renminbi in the same way, because if you want to make the renminbi a global reserve currency, it means you have to truly liberalize your capital markets, and it means you have to truly make sure the renminbi is fully convertible. And in the steps that China has taken in the past decade to do that, it has inevitably led to private sector Chinese actors getting their money out of China. And, and the renminbi, to be clear for listeners, is the Chinese currency. Yes. yeah. But the point being that while China might chafe against the fact that the dollar is the world's reserve currency, it's not clear to me they have the means to create it as a substitute. They might want to trade with Russia in terms of renminbi. That could certainly you know, be something that happens. But it's not clear Chinese banks want to do that. And Chinese banks do have their own preferences on this. And they, generally speaking, like to deal in dollars. So I guess I would say that there are occasionally reasons to be concerned that the U.S. abuse of sanctions threatens the status of the dollar. This is not one of those moments, though, because most other financial heavyweights are backing the sanctions.
2: Yeah. Part of my thinking here is this this article I read in The Atlantic called The World is Splitting in Two, which seemed to me to be a surprising claim, because if you look at where economic power lies in terms of GDP, financial heavyweights, centers of global trading, like you name it, it is the case that only a small number of countries have signed on percentage-wise to the U.S.-led sanctions regime in Russia. But those countries represent an outsized percentage of the global economy. There's no replacing places like London, right, in global trade when compared to, I I don't know, insert country here that hasn't signed on to the sanctions regime. And it suggests to me that while China is in some ways attempting to mount Challenge to the international economic order. It's not something they can really do alone, given how much they want to participate in the global economy, because that's how you get rich, and they would like to be rich. Right, and they don't have any economic heavyweights on their side. The closest to that is Russia, and Russia, its economy has been decapped potentially for quite some time going forward.
3: Yeah. So what China can do is function as what's called a black knight. So in economic sanctions. A black knight is someone who can step in and essentially offer substitute exchange for the country or coalition of countries that is imposing the sanctions. Think what the Soviet Union did in Cuba um, after the United States and the OAS imposed sanctions on uh, Cuba when Castro took over. The United States similarly acted as a black knight when the Soviets tried to pressure Yugoslavia during the Cold War. So China can absolutely function as a black knight to help bolster Russia. And there are Strategic reasons why China would choose to do this, among other things, Russia is its most important geopolitical partner. You know, they share a border. That part makes sense. Can China be at the center of an alternative economic order? Maybe, but it would have to do a lot more heavy lifting than it's done. And this leads to the other point, which is I wrote about this in a column for The Post, that it's been pointed out and there's that map that's gone around, as you said, showing that only, you know, the West is sanctioned. Russia, that if you take a look at the map, it's the United States, it's North America, it's Europe, and it's sort of parts of the Pacific Rim, that no one else has ostensibly sanctioned Russia, showing that this is limited. That's the wrong way to look at it. Yes, other countries have not imposed their own sanctions against Russia. But the important question to ask is, are these countries complying with U.S. sanctions and and Western-led sanctions against uh, Russia? And the answer there is pretty much yes. You're still seeing them by energy from Russia, but to be fair, so are the Europeans. So it would be somewhat weird to criticize other countries for acting similarly. And again, the thing that really matters here is in part the the corporate actions taken against Russia as well. And those are the things that are actually having the impact on the Russian economy. So- I guess I would say that it doesn't really matter all that much if other countries are not officially imposing their own sanctions against Russia. The sanctions that are in place are already causing significant damage to Russia.
2: So when you when you talk about the rest of the world and purchases of Russian goods, right, oil and gas are are the big ones. But another important one is wheat. And that has been seriously disrupted by the war, not just because of sanctions, but also because Ukraine is a significant wheat exporter, and Ukraine is not in a position to do much of anything in terms of normal economic functioning right now. And wheat is – it's got to be one of the most important global commodities. Uh, I mean, we've seen the evidence, or at least some evidence, that food prices can trigger significant global upheaval. There's an argument that the Arab Spring was sparked by an increase in food prices, and in general, can lead to significant discontent because people really need to buy food. So – To what extent are the sanctions setting the stage not just for, like, conflicts between the U.S. and China, but conflict inside countries given a a global – likely global surge in prices for significant food staples?
3: This is definitely a problem in that, you know, as you say, that was one of the sources of the Arab Spring. The figure that everyone likes to throw around is that combined Russia and Ukraine are responsible for 25 percent of global wheat exports. That makes it sound really bad. But there's a difference between talking about total wheat exports as opposed to total wheat production. Right, And this is where it might be that the concerns here have been somewhat outstated. And this is an example, frankly, of the market potentially working because the idea that Russia was potentially going to attack Ukraine was plainly aware to an awful lot of of wheat producers back in the fall. And so as a result, you saw wheat future prices go up. You saw actors responding to that. So Indian wheat production, I think, for example, surged as a result of this. So I think you are going to see temporary dislocations. And I think countries that in particular relied on Ukrainian and Russian wheat exports have now got to find new suppliers. So I don't want to say that there's no dislocation. There can potentially be, in some places, spikes in wheat prices. But what it might not be is the sort of global shock that a lot of people thought would be the case a month ago because, among other things, wheat exports is only a fraction of actual wheat production. And so actually there's a fair amount of wheat still out there. And you did have market participants increase their production. So food prices are going to go up by a little bit. I don't mean to say that that's not going to happen, but it, it's not quite the god or damerung that perhaps has been uh, portrayed in some of the mainstream media.
2: That's that's the first reassuring thing. Well, it's not the first reassuring thing, but it is a reassuring element of this otherwise deeply
3: unsettling time. <laughs> One suggestion I saw was that, you know, rather than thinking about 25%, for example, um, of like wheat exports, that if you think about it in terms of total wheat production, The Russian and Ukrainian exports are something like less than 1%. It's like 0.9%. So, again, not nothing, but also not quite the same sort of magnitude.
2: We're going to take one last quick break, but one more back. Dan Dresner and I have talked all about what these economic sanctions are doing, how they could reshape the global economy, but there's one big thing we haven't talked about. What's the end game?
4: Support for The Gray Area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free.
1: Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
2: The last sort of big thing that we haven't talked about um, is not what the sanctions are doing or how they could reshape the global economy, but how they end. And... It's not clear to me what the endgame is, and I want want to share a little story about this. uh, I think you'll appreciate it. So a few weeks ago, I was on MSNBC, and I made this argument that the sanctions were put together really quickly, and there wasn't an obvious off-ramp for them, and it wasn't clear what the U.S. government was planning to do. Uh, In terms of, you know, maybe lifting the sanctions in exchange for an end to the war or something like that. So I got a really angry email from Treasury about this. It's like, why didn't you ask us about the plan that we had put into this and all the work and thought we'd put into it? I'd be happy to put you in touch with someone. And so I've sent them about four emails, three or four emails since then. And they haven't gotten back to me on actually how this is supposed to end. And I, you (laughs) know… This is not just to shame them, but genuinely it's a real problem, right? Like if you don't know the conditions under which you're going to relax the sanctions, how is Russia supposed to know what it needs to do in order to get relief from the sanctions? And if Russia doesn't know that, how are they supposed to work at all to do anything
3: in terms of making the situation better on the ground in Ukraine? First of all, Treasury never emails me, so I'm a (laughs) little hurt, you know, and I even worked at Treasury back in the day. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little surprised by this. But second, yeah, this is a problem. And to be fair, this is a complicated negotiation problem because one of the issues about this war is who is negotiating with who. And the only negotiations that have really taken place has been between Russia and Ukraine about the war, whereas to my knowledge, there has actually been no contact whatsoever between Russia and the United States about these sanctions. And that is a problem Uh, because, again, as you say, and as I, I said in my column, for sanctions to work, you have to have two kinds of credible commitment. The first credible commitment is that we will actually sanction if you, the other actor, does something bad. But the second form of credible commitment is to say, if you comply, if you make this concession, yes, we will lift the sanctions. And it is that second form of credible commitment that the United States has been really bad at. The United States is really, really, really good at imposing sanctions, and we stink at lifting them. Um, And so this is a problem. Now, in terms of what should be done with Ukraine, if I were the United States, if I was advising Treasury, or if I was advising the Biden White House, one of the things you might want to do would be to signal to Russia that, in fact, the lifting of the sanctions is in part going to be a function of whether or not the Zelensky government wants the sanctions lifted. This is something that would give Zelensky some bargaining power In terms of his negotiations with Russia. And it's a little dangerous for the United States because you normally don't want to outsource foreign policy to a foreign leader. But there could be a panoply of sanctions that you tell Zelensky, look, if you get Russia to make concessions at the negotiating table and they're actually honored, you can be the one to tell us it is okay to lift sanctions. And that might actually solve the political problem in the United States of lifting sanctions because the problem is, is that when that happens, inevitably, the opposition party accuses whichever leader is lifting the sanctions of being too dovish. But if Zelensky gives his blessing, given his current personal standing, that would actually grease the wheel somewhat. I'm a little more optimistic in this case about some of the sanctions that can be lifted against Russia, in part because, again, a lot of this stuff has been informal. It's been corporate actions. And so another interesting question is, is that if the war comes to an end, Will you see those corporations go back into Russia en masse, or are they rethinking what they're going to be doing in Russia long term? Um, And then fortunately, at least with the financial sanctions, so far, to my knowledge, Congress hasn't passed any laws mandating them. And that's in some ways the key thing. What you want to do is not have Congress pass any laws mandating sanctions, because if they do that, reversing those laws will be next to impossible. The only other thing I guess I would say on this is that, again, I'm still not entirely sure what the U.S. demands are. I mean, I think the the closest I've seen was a statement by Secretary of State Blinken that basically made it clear Russian forces have to get out of Ukraine, which is a clear demand, to be fair. The question is whether it's such a large demand and also what is defined as all of Ukraine in that demand that it is actually incentive compatible for Russia to deliver on. Right. This gets back to a point that um, you made earlier in
2: the conversation, which is, do you think about the sanctions as a kind of police action or not? Because if, if they're a police action that are designed to some kind of equivalent of putting Russia in international financial jail, well, Russia will still have invaded Ukraine after a peace agreement. They still will have annexed Crimea illegally. And whether or not, depending on how their negotiations flesh out, the Crimea issue may be resolved. It probably won't. and so. The same will be true about eastern Ukraine, right, about the Donbass region. And if you're in this punishment mind, right, then you say, well, we, we got to keep the sanctions on Russia so other states know there's a cost to these actions. But if your view is the sanctions were a tool to get Russia to reverse specifically the invasion that began on February 24th, then you want to start the process of lifting them along with any kind of peace negotiations or agreements that come out whenever that might happen. So a, a giant question mark. What the U.S. does. So it, it's just not clear to me whether or not we think of this as punishment or incentive. And it just leads to very different policy pathways for the U.S. and its broader allies in the sanctions regime. Yeah,
3: I, I mean, it, it, And as I wrote in the column where I asked what was the purpose of the sanctions, there are many legitimate purposes to sanction Russia in terms of what it did in Ukraine. One was, as I said, the Biden administration threatened to. And if you threaten, you're going to do something. And then the other side says, fine, we dare you. You do have to follow through on the threat. The other reason is to beyond coercion is deterrence, which is you're not just concerned with what Russia is doing in Ukraine. You're concerned about other great powers that I don't know might. Let's say, rhyme with China. Like, 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 Chaiwan maybe would be the there other country. There we go. Yeah. Yes. Or, <laughs> yes, exactly. The, or Faiwan, whatever. You know, <laughs> that basically, you know, you want other great powers to think twice about their actions because this is the repercussions of that. So that's the utility for sanctions. Going forward, if there is actually an agreement between Russia and Ukraine, I think the Biden administration needs to start thinking now, really, in some ways, about, you know, three steps. The first is what sanctions will be lifted? if Russia and Ukraine come to an agreement that looks like it'll be stable. And some sanctions should be lifted. If you just keep the sanctions in place no matter what, the lesson to Russia is is it doesn't matter what they do, they're gonna get sanctioned anyway. You don't want that necessarily to be the perception. The second is what sanctions are you gonna keep in place? Russia did violate international norms in terms of what it did in Ukraine. It can't unwind that clock. There are legitimate concerns about constraining Russian military power in the long term. It won't surprise me if you see efforts to create some sort of new form of COCOM, um, which is short for a coordinating committee, which was a a Cold War structure um, that implemented the strategic embargo of the West against the Soviet Union. So that's possible. And then the third thing to think about is What is the long-term economic relationship that the West wants with Russia? In other words, what are the areas where you think trade and exchange will still potentially be useful and potentially build a way towards a constructive partnership or indicate that Russia can re-enter the international order? And then what are the dependencies that you want to make sure don't happen again? What are the asymmetric dependencies like, let's say, Russian oil and natural gas that you want to try to diversify as soon as possible? There's also an ethical dimension here
2: that I think is pretty fraught, right? We haven't talked about this yet, but Mm -hmm. broad-based sanctions, like the one the U.S. has used, and to some extent, as you pointed out earlier, targeted sanctions, they affect ordinary people. That's how they work, right? It's the point in some ways. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of Russians that are suffering, and like there are all these long-term objectives that the U.S. might want to pursue in terms of sanctions. And and we sort of all agree that in the immediate exigency of Russia's horrific invasion— it's okay to use a certain amount of financial coercion against Russia, or at least it's it's defensible. Mm-hmm. But the the further away you get from the war, and especially after a peace agreement, it seems harder and harder to say we can pursue whatever goals we want. We being the U.S. government here, and hurt ordinary Russians for a long period of time and inflict like pretty significant mass suffering in the name of. Potentially having a small increase in deterrent effect against China going forward, right? It just becomes very, very difficult to make an argument for making a large chunk of these sanctions permanent.
3: That's correct, and it creates an additional problem, which is to say that one thing that target governments almost always excel at is it shifting the blame for any economic price paid by sanctions to the countries imposing the sanctions. So the idea that the sanctions would cause Russians to rise up and revolt against Vladimir Putin, I think, misunderstands how sanctions sometimes work. That very often, target regimes will use sanctions as a rally around the flag moment. Fidel Castro, for his entirety of his rule, was able to blame every economic problem in Cuba on the U.S. embargo. I guarantee you Vladimir Putin will do the same in terms of thinking about the Russian economy going forward. And the Russian economy is going to you know, face some serious issues. There is a related problem. And again, this is how you want Russia to evolve over time, which is what the sanctions are also doing is essentially forcing the Russians that presumably you want to stay in Russia that actually prize the liberal order, that prize relations with the West to leave. They're fleeing the country or or, want to seek sanctuary elsewhere, which means that the remaining Russians are on. doubtedly going to be more pro-Putin. Now, whether this is a a short-term thing or a more long-term thing, the point is is that ideally you would want Russia to at least have a range of of domestic views in terms of how it should be dealing with the West. But the sanctions are sort of encouraging the Russians that that would be most pro-Western to simply join the West.
2: And the theory that sanctions— Can provoke or prompt an uprising. It's one that, you know, if you make the people suffer enough, then they're going to rise up against the government. The Cuba example cuts against it. As you say, there's a lot of effective blame shifting, as does the Iran example. There was a lot of theorizing in the mid 2000s and, and 2010s that, you know, all this economic pressure and suffering inflicted by the sanctions related to the nuclear program might lead to a popular revolt. Especially in the wake of the the green movement in 2009, which was a mass popular protest against the Iranian government, that didn't happen. right? It, even when the Iranian government was under significant pressure, there was little evidence that the sanctions prompted a mass Iranian uprising. So holding out that hope for just like you know, keeping up the economic pressure on Vladimir Putin for, you know, the decades to come as a way of toppling his government seems not promising.
3: It's highly unlikely. Yeah, there's no denying that. I mean, part of the problem is in trying to think about how Putin leaves office, you know, there are a couple of different scenarios. But the two most obvious ones are someone within Putin's inner circle decides enough is enough. We need to make a change. Or the other possibility is the sort of social revolution from below. The second possibility seems unlikely. Again, you have seen, to be fair, significant protests in places like Moscow and St. Petersburg. You've also seen significant jailing of those people who have protested and the, the sort of exodus of the Russian intelligentsia and urban middle class as the sort of new, you know, iron curtain has been uh, descending on Russia as for an elite overthrow of, of Vladimir Putin. It's possible, I suppose, but, you know, start trying to think about who would replace Putin and then it becomes a little more difficult. Unfortunately, it seems likely that Vladimir Putin will stay in power going forward. I mean, unless this war continues to go so badly for Russia that they literally are not able to maintain a foothold in Ukraine. The other thing which I don't want to rule out, which also might tip the scales, is if as Russia becomes so preoccupied with Ukraine that Russia's interests in other parts of its near abroad become threatened. So, if let's say, I don't know, Moldova decided that now was a good time to move on Transnistria,
2: which is to be clear a part of Moldova that Russia has asserted claims over.
3: Yes, there was a very brief war between Moldova and that strip of land with Transnistria that is a mostly Russian population. Transnistria has been largely, you know, autonomous since 1992, and there are some Russian forces there, things like about a thousand of them. But that said. With Russia preoccupied elsewhere, it would be an interesting moment if Moldova decided they want to put pressure on Transnistria. And they've actually made speeches recently calling on Russians to remove forces. Or if, let's say, uh, there is more instability in Belarus. You've already seen signs that the the Belarusian army does not want to move into Ukraine, uh, that that is a no-go line for them, uh, which does raise interesting questions about just how firm is, is Lukashenko's hold on power there? And you've also seen, by the way, Azerbaijan starting to make demands about Armenian forces leaving disputed territories, where, again, what you're seeing is states realizing that Russia's attention is preoccupied elsewhere. They might be able to advance their own interests now. If Russia starts losing on a wide part of its sort of near abroad interest, that could cause either Putin to reevaluate or Putin's circle to think this is going even worse than we'd realized, action needs to be taken. The point, though, about those different scenarios is they don't have
2: a lot to do with Western sanctions, right? It's the war itself that creates some problems and vulnerabilities for the Putin regime, right? Not so much the sanctions,
3: Right. Although this here it's worth pointing, and and there's a great new book that just came out by uh, Nicholas Mulder called The Economic Weapon um, about the use of sanctions and sort of modern origin of sanctions. And he raises an important point that is always worth remembering, which is we tend to think of sanctions as a substitute for war, but it is worth remembering the sort of modern technology of sanctions really emerged as a complement to war. The first sort of modern sanctions were essentially those implemented on the central powers during World War One as a form of economic blockade. And in, in that sense, one way in which the sanctions against Russia might be working is not in terms of coercive pressure, but in terms of weakening Russia's ability to actually prosecute the war in Ukraine. So I guess that then
2: leads to sort of one final question, which is that is there an argument for making any of this permanent? Should all of this just be seen as a short term? We got a Punish Russia, we need to make sure that it's clear that the invasion was uh, met with a strong Western response, and then we relax it in response to the invasion, uh, and then that's it. Russia can come back into the global economic order by and large. Or is there any credible argument for keeping a part of the sanctions infrastructure in perpetuity, maybe forever, have some kind of demonstrative effect about the consequences of this action?
3: I think there are two areas where continued sanctions might make some sense. The first is the sort of high technology trade where, you know, if you really are seeing Russia as potentially an actor that, yeah, lost in Ukraine now, but is clearly going to contemplate future military actions, you might want to actually restrain Russia's ability to be able to produce sophisticated military equipment on its own without relying on Western supply chains. And so action might be taken there. The second area is... There are lots of ways in which some of the sanctions that have been imposed against Russia are fighting not just, you know, Vladimir Putin, but you're you're dealing with sort of anti-corruption or anti-kleptocracy sanctions. And keeping those in place and pointing out the ways in which Putin has enriched himself at Russia's expense isn't the worst thing to, to think about and is certainly consistent with, you know, Biden's larger foreign policy agenda.
2: Dan, I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking about uh, you know, basically the entire future of the global economy. No, no, no big deal here <laughs> on, on the show. But yeah, this has been great. Dan Dresner is a professor at Tufts University and a Washington Post opinion writer. Thanks, Dan, again, for being on the show. Thanks a lot, Zach. This was a lot of fun. Our special series, The War in Ukraine Explained, continues next week, where we focus on fears surrounding nuclear escalation. What are the conditions under which the unthinkable might happen? And what more could be done to prevent it? I'll be talking with Jeffrey Lewis, a leading nuclear weapons expert at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, about all of these topics. That'll be next Thursday, so make sure that you're subscribed. Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis, our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could make better. If you have any ideas on these topics or for future guests or things to discuss, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. If you did like this episode, share it with your friends, and please rate and review and subscribe. And join us on Monday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations with my friend and yours,
4: Sean Elling.